0: The Lloyd's List
1: Shipping Podcast
0: Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. This week, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a scientific body convened under the United Nations, released its latest assessment of global warming. It has variously been described as a wake-up call to governments and code red for planet Earth, but essentially it confirms what the scientific community has been sure of for some time – namely that the world cannot avoid some devastating impacts of climate change. The report, which is based on the analysis of more than 14,000 studies, is the clearest and most comprehensive summary yet of the physical science of climate change. To avoid the worst of the doomsday scenarios being laid out with depressing clarity would require the whole of the world, not just the rich countries, to get net emissions of carbon dioxide down to zero before 2050. Now that's a tall order, to put it mildly. Even the most ambitious of the various emissions scenarios modelled by the IPCC's experts offers less than a 50% chance of staying below the crucial 1.5 degrees of heating. But what does this mean for shipping, I hear you ask? Well, for those of you who have already waded through the extensive text, you'll know that shipping is not being explicitly called out in this report, but the recommendations to the regulators, they are of direct significance to shipping's decarbonisation timeline. And the headline here is that the pressure is on for maritime to speed up its efforts. Dr. Tristan Smith of University College London is a well-known voice on this podcast. Uh, he's also the industry's leading academic on low-carbon shipping. He joins me this week to discuss the IPCC report, what it means for shipping, why LNG is going to get more expensive, and whether there's any optimism he can offer as we consider shipping's difficult transition to zero carbon. Welcome back to the podcast, Tristan. Thanks for joining us. With Talking uh, just a few days after the IPCC delivered its latest report, and while the data and the details offer little news to those of us who have been looking at the the evolution of these studies over recent years, it's quite startling how this science has become clearer, the warnings have become starker, and timelines are unfortunately getting shorter. Coming as it does in a summer of shattered temperature records and pretty terrifying fires and floods, an IPCC report in which predictions of future global warming are set out quite so clearly should invoke change at a political level. That's what we're assuming. Can we perhaps start by just getting your reaction to the report and how you think this affects shipping's own timeline and the the various efforts to decarbonize shipping?
1: Um Yes, it sort of gets squeezed at both ends as time goes on and no action is taken. So, or not no action, but not enough action is taken. And by what I mean by that is, is all driven by the fundamental climate science, actually, that's all been in the IPCC reports for the last 25 years. This is a cumulative emissions problem. It's not about whether the emissions are zero or low in any particular year. It's about the uh, amount that we accumulate over the next three decades or that we're accumulating now as emissions, um, not just from shipping, but from all sectors don't reduce. And so we know that as we get further into the next two or three years, four years, the next IPCC report, if if we're continually, c- continually falling behind on the rates of reduction that would be in line with 1.5, then not only does the pressure to act increase, but the point at which and the shape of the curve that we need to get to to keep 1.5 alive, the point at which we need to reach zero becomes closer and the shape of the curve becomes steeper because the start date is moving further further forward. So everything becomes compressed. And this is, I think this is all quite foreseeable um, that we're in this period where we know what the science is, um, but we also don't have quite the movement across government, across everything. Um, mm. to, to respond to that, and that is going to create this more this more compressed transition in the future. And
0: as you say, the, the the climate science is is not new. As we've seen, this is a sort of slightly starker warning. But what I think is different is that it is happening at a period where climate change is um, tangibly in the headlines. We have uh, you know extreme weather events happening around the world as we speak. And we are also in a period where the international conversation in terms of policy is probably the highest profile it has ever been. And we're talking in the lead up to the COP discussions later this year in the UK. Do you think that the the starkness of the warnings here in the IPCC report and the confluence of that and the various other uh, projects and meetings that are happening right now is... Our best chance yet effectively to, to to have a proper conversation about what this looks like in terms of
1: mitigation efforts yes i think so i think or the mitigation efforts needed yeah i think that is definitely increasing and it will continue to increase and that's how we sometimes express things in our work as you know we can expect increasing headwinds against the fossil fuel era it's not that we are looking at a period where the di- dynamic the dialogue that we have today will be constant and um, severity of impacts forest fires and extreme events and frequency of impacts will only increase and the climate science will be only become clearer and that's that's um it's not changing the fundamentals of the science but it changes the wording and the statements that are made or can be agreed as consensus statements over time and i think one of the things that struck me as being a key wording difference even if the mathematics or the physics hasn't changed is this expression that we can expect to reach by 2040 and uh that's really challenging to those who are on these narratives around we've got to hit zero in 2050 because actually the you know we've we've inevitably hit 1.5 the only thing we can do at this point in time is reduce the extent to which we exceed 1.5 because that's that's a a runaway process that we're locked into because you can't turn on a dime from the climate physics perspective even if you could stop all fossil emissions tomorrow um so you have that and then the, the the statement that that's now 2040. And I think that, that creates, I hope, a bit more potential for an honest ex, 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 exchange of views that A, you know, zero by 2050 is rapidly becoming not just um, the requirement but looking too weak. And that, that we need to be much more uh, clearly talking about what happens in 2030 and what happens in 2040 within a sector that at the moment doesn't have anything explicit for what it needs to achieve at those two milestones.
0: Well, let's uh, talk more specifically about shipping. The IPCC report doesn't name check shipping specifically, but it does talk extensively about methane, which obviously is significant to the shipping debate, particularly in terms of the transitional uh, options that the industry is looking at, namely LNG. Um, It also name checks black carbon, which I think is an issue that is gaining um notoriety within the industry in terms of how we look at our decarbonisation efforts but let's start with the methane issue what's your conclusion in terms of the impact that this is going to have on the
1: lng lng debate within shipping i did I, well again it's challenging isn't it because this isn't anything new these are <laughs> we knew that that methane had a high multiplier on its global warming potential already um so, so that information is there. I guess, you know, I guess what we've got is just a, another, even another repeat of that, and a more emphasis placed on it, more clarity perhaps placed on the way it's emphasised. And I, mm-hmm. I, and so the question. Sorry, I'm turning your question back into a statement. But I, I, I think that um, it just creates more headwind. It just creates a much harder environment for government to not regulate on methane and which which in shipping they obviously don't have any regulation in place at the moment it makes a much harder environment for those who are incentivizing methane so the european union at the moment in its fit for for 55 is, is, um, is looking at incentivizing the ports to be able to provide lng which seems very it seems bonkers to 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 put it frankly at this point in time with the language in the ipcc's report um so so it it just creates a lot more pressure politically but i think it creates more pressure in the in the business to business and in the consumer to business discussions as well because all of this increases in its pertinence in all of those exchanges and i i, I i'll go back to your comment a couple of minutes ago, because this isn't just an IPCC report in isolation, it's an IPCC report alongside all the climate tragedies that we're seeing in the news, and that is where the consumer and the business-to-business pressure, I think, comes from. So it would be a mistake to look at this as just, oh, this is now going to increase pressure and regulation. I think it increases pressure on all of the levers of change that will disincentivize and create a much harder environment for LNG to succeed. Now, that, that doesn't mean that it won't still have a lot of um investment aligned to it over the next couple of years it's very confusing to hear me say something like that and then look at the papers and the number of new builds that are being spec'd to lng but i think that's because of, of the time lags that we have here we have investment decisions that were perhaps made a couple of years ago that are now playing out in a very different uh, uh, dynamic of debate um, and it is quite hard to kind of re- remove those as the debate's moving so fast
0: and and that's the interesting factor here. We're not disputing the climate science, we're not disputing the fact that methane is a problem, but these business decisions are being taken within a context. Now, you've argued for some time that LNG as a transitional option is variously know, bonkers or uh, you know not a particularly good commercial uh, view, given the inevitable um, sort of regulatory headwinds that you've just described. I mean, do you think it's fair to say that shipping has backed the wrong horse when it comes to LNG?
1: Well, shipping hasn't backed it, right? I I mean, mean, there are new builds being built to that specification. Some of those might be able to be retrofitted to zero emission fuels in the future. And there's only a certain volume of energy use that's associated with those new builds. So there isn't, it's not that there's no space for it. But there's a difficulty if the narrative is that we, as a collective sector, move through a transition first to LNG and then to zero emission fuel. And I think that's that's where this often gets confused. So I don't see the sector as a whole backing LNG. I see as a certain percentage of the fleet moving that direction. And as long as that remains a small percentage of the fleet, it's it's not surprising. And it's also not the end of the world. It's just across Mm. the world. It, it grows to become a very significant portion of the fuel mix and so I wouldn't you know I don't know exactly where the percentage of fuel use are that we're currently locked into maybe it's three percent, four percent something of that order of magnitude and in some of the scenarios that are out there you know it, in some people's projections it becomes 30 percent of the fuel mix by 2030 if that unfolds I think we have got then a really difficult problem to unscramble as we go into the 2030s because we'll have a lot of very young very early in their lifetime and their economic lifetime investments aligned to LNG and um, a very large amount of fuel that would need to be somehow taken out and a lot of investment reversed out essentially which could be reversed out through retrofit if we're very very clever but that's not going to be people's first preference they'll want to get return on the sunk cost and that's 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 at the point where, so it's more about the warning of backing the wrong horse with momentum Mm. relative to where we are now than saying that Mm. we at this point back the wrong horse. But whatever that percentage ends up being,
0: and uh, you know you you describe a a relatively small swathe of vessels currently compared to the rest of the fleet having LNG input, either dual or tri-fuel engines, the likelihood is given the direction of the government uh, recommendations, not just within the IPCC report, but within recent World Bank reports and various other directional scientific evidence being submitted to governments, that LNG is increasingly going to be uh, seen as a bad thing in terms of the speed at which governments can uh, achieve these contracting timelines. The knock-on consequence of that is that you are going to see the initial assumptions about lng become far more costly than the assumptions that were being taken when these ships were being
1: ordered say 2 years ago yeah exactly and that's and that's some of the work that we've been putting out is ex- ex- exactly that argument i think so I, I can't disagree with you there that you know as you th- there's an element of this which is has to unfortunately in the regulatory space get get very much simplified i.e this is good that is bad and then the incentives (laughs) or the disincentives become aligned and the consequence of the costs associated with you having to have machinery or equipment which has absolutely zero risk of methane leak so that it can at all be justified you know that increases and yes that is going to turn into a cost for that technology pathway and uh, the question that I think is unclear at the moment is is the political pressure as much now? So it, is it increasing so much now that the the way that those incentives will have to have very high stringency on any methane risk or leak risk um going to affect the existing investments or only the new investments from a certain point in time? And we we know that you know, typically, if if at all possible, regulators like regulators prefer to only regulate new investments because that's much less disruptive. So NOx emissions regulation is a further new builds from X and not a retrospectively applied requirement for all ships to suddenly fit a selective catalytic reduction technology or something. But the, I think on methane we have to, we ha- it's probably, I think we have, we just don't know at this point in time and I think it's a risk that anyone investing in LNG needs to bear in mind that it could be retroactively applied. Um, let's turn attention
0: briefly, if we can to black carbon. It's an issue that has been raised sporadically, but it's certainly not received the same attention, I think as other issues in the decarbonization debate. It is name checked in the IPCC reports. Do you think there is um
1: you know detail here that the shipping industry should be paying attention to? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's starting to, but it's very difficult at the IMO because of the structure and the fact it's been pushed into PPR as a technical discussion there about measurement, which has just not moved very fast in the last couple of years. And um, it's it's very clear from the IPCC, but it's actually also very clear in the fourth IMO greenhouse gas study that this is a headline issue that the shipping industry and the IMO don't have any control on at this point in time, a headline issue because it's, it's actually by percentage terms, the second most significant influencer of climate change from shipping and even if even if we have arguments about the precise values you know the the values are that it's you know five to ten percent of the climate impact of shipping at this point in time and as the ipcc work shows it's a short-lived climate force so it's really important to the temperature rises that we experience in the next three decades and therefore part of the obvious tool set that any regulator would use to minimize the short-term um, risks of 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 rising emissions not just as they look to control the longer term risks that are all predominantly affected by co2 so it, yeah i think it, i think there's two pieces of evidence the ipcc and the fourth IMO greenhouse gas study really challenged the um apathy that currently exists that that carbon is something that we can kick into into sort of deep technical discussion it needs to be dealt with much more urgently um and more carefully and in an integrated approach to the climate impact of shipping
0: and i mean just for the uh, for the non regulatory uh, geeks who are sort of poring over the details of these i mean what broadly would you say is the main concern here and the and the likely consequence if we see black carbon then being tightened up as a, as a regulatory headline figure within the imo because the consequences are commercially speaking pretty intense
1: yeah, so it's a bit like the methane question is to what extent does it only apply to new builds? Do you retroactively also regulate? I mean, the, I don't, this is not my expertise, so I don't know exactly the relationship between different fuels that you can burn in existing engines, but there's clearly one part of this which is that might incentivize switch to alternative fuels, and there's another part of it which might apply more regulation or more exhaust treatment technologies onto the existing machinery, and obviously both of those would be a cost consideration and um, and they could be applied only to new bills or they could be applied retroactively as well um, as we get to the control side of this. I think, I mean, for me, the it's a bit, the other lurking one here that is often not looked at very closely is N2O and, and obviously NOx. And I think looking at looking at the options that we have of alternative fuels for the future and machinery that would go with them, the sooner we take a more integrated look across multiple emission species and not just our focus on CO2, which is a necessary simplification, which is which is often made, the, the better because it'll risk us from quit taking dead ends or perverse incentive, incentive incentivizations at this point. Okay,
0: and finally, I want to take a quick look forward to the the next major waypoint, I guess, in the uh, in the, in the public debate, which is going to be COP. Um, this is the big meeting at the end of the year, being here in the UK. Do you think um, that that is heading in the right direction? There seems to be a sort of headwind, certainly within the industry discussion, that that is going to be the forum at which shipping is going to be relatively high profile compared to other international climate change um us, where shipping has, has certainly been pretty low profile, I think in the grand scheme of things. Um, do, you think, do you think COP is gonna be that turning point that everybody is expecting?
1: So in the, in the detailed negotiations that COP is really about, I'm guessing that shipping doesn't, doesn't actually play a very large role. Um, but I don't think COP is really about, or for the sector, maybe it's not about those detailed negotiations, it's about all of the political pressure that appears around it. And the, the Paris Agreement process set up a very clever mechanism, which is this review of the efforts that everyone's making and a discussion about whether more needs to be taken. And the, and the need for a rupture and I think this is where shipping is going to lose badly at COP because the outcome at MEPC seventy six on short term measures is so weak that it doesn't can't it can't give shipping a narrative where it can go. We now have a short term measure that can drive absolute emission reductions this decade. So the overall framing that we have from UNFCCC, we need to halve our emissions by twenty thirty on a twenty ten baseline. You know. Mm. We have a we have a very, very poor story that someone, IMO, the industry, is gonna is gonna have to represent and be criticized over in that forum, regardless of whether, you know, it's substance in the language to do with articles that are gonna be negotiated by government. It's about the, the PR of the sector really. And I think that, that looks that looks really bad. Uh, from the point of view of actions currently taken and it also but it's also helpful because that creates the potential for this discussion where you know perhaps leaders um perhaps governments who want a stronger outcome and perhaps industry players who want a stronger outcome can can articulate and be judged on what they're expressing um those things to be and it's just going to be very important that those are genuine in order to counter the the pressure the political pressure that will be against shipping given the poor performance in the last IMO discussions. Um, I'm aware
0: and I have had feedback from multiple listeners uh, the podcast that uh, th- these discussions are increasingly depressing um, in <laughs> terms of uh, consequences not just for the individuals but for the companies. Um, Get, can you offer us any optimism here where are the opportunities for those who are prepared to step up go above and beyond and and look at the outcome of these reports and say we can do better you know is there an opportunity here for the the leadership within shipping to to turn this round do you think
1: yeah I think there is and uh, like it, it's so hard to judge, isn't it? Because the perspective we all apply, or I apply, maybe I don't want to suggest everyone else does Is you know, we're 2021, the conversation that we're having today, but we're talking about a process that's going to map out over three decades and increasingly good things will happen over that period as well as obviously probably increasingly bad things and and, and it's very hard to be very optimistic about how good those good things might be. And what I mean by that is, you know, sat three, four years ago before the outcome of the initial strategy at the IMO in 2018, the shipping sector's dialogue, the um, maturity of the alternative zero emission options was, was, it was a completely different uh, dynamic than the one that we have today. We now have serious investment going into zero emission fuel production pathways, machinery, and a massively more developed and, and progressive dialogue across the sector and across the regulatory space so like there's loads that we can actually be quite positive and optimistic about i think it's it's hard to see or it's hard to be optimistic about the conversion of where we are now into the detail and the business case and the actual policy measure that everybody wants but can see taking years of time to negotiate so so i guess that's where some of the 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 depression might come from that you kind of measure the future by the dynamic that we're in now so I guess the reason to be optimistic is that we are in a in a constantly improving dynamic and the and the and the constantly improving dynamic will actually I think help to materialize the things that we know need to happen but we can't quite see happening in the current dynamic I'm not sure if that is uh is credible or uh, intelligible but um I'm not un- uh, I'm not unoptimistic <laughs>
0: well thank you thank you for giving us some hope uh, there is a light at the end of the tunnel uh but for now um Dr Tristan Smith thank you very much for joining the Loislist podcast
1: thank you